This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, a new vision of aging. Support CARP with your membership today. Visit carp.ca. Good afternoon and welcome to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Libby Snymer. What do we know about Pfizer's COVID vaccine, which the company says is more than 90% effective? And I talked to the winner of this year's Scotiabank Giller Prize. But first, here are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. It's a disease we believed we had eliminated, but measles cases and deaths worldwide swelled to their highest level in more than two decades. According to a new report by the World Health Organization and the Centers for Disease Control, the global death tally for 2019, 207,500, was 50% higher than just three years earlier. The stunning rise in the vaccine-preventable disease is linked to the anti-vaxxer movement, and authorities worry that the pandemic will exacerbate the spread of measles, which is even more contagious than COVID-19. If you overshare on social media, you could be among the 20% of adults who risk Internet fraud, according to new research out of the U.K., Birthdays, pet names, phone numbers, and even home addresses are among the personal details commonly shared by the adults polled by Lloyds Bank. Despite these admissions, 29% still think they'd never be a victim of online fraud, and 30% had no idea that what they post could leave them vulnerable. In Canada last year, almost 45,000 people fell victim to fraud, losing more than $96 million. Speaking of oversharing, The New Yorker has fired longtime staff writer Jeffrey Tubin after he exposed himself when he began to masturbate during a Zoom call last month. He had already been on suspension and is also on leave from CNN, where he is the chief legal analyst. Tubin confirmed the firing by tweet, writing that he would always love the magazine and miss his colleagues. Condé Nast said it took the action after their investigation was complete. Bond. James Bond. Sean Connery's 91-year-old widow could face jail time over alleged tax fraud in Spain. Micheline Roquebrun has denied being involved in a scam involving the sale of their home in a resort town in southern Spain. The house was raised to make way for 70 apartments despite rules that only five could be built. Connery's lawyers, the town mayor, and six councillors were jailed in the scam. Sean Connery died last month at the age of 90 from dementia. Lockdown has been declared the word of the year for 2020 by the Collins Dictionary after a sharp rise in its usage during the pandemic. Collins said it encapsulates the shared experience of billions of people. Lexicographers registered more than 250,000 usages of 
locked down during the year, up from just 4,000 last year. Other pandemic-linked terms on the 10-strong list include furlough, self-isolate, social distancing, and coronavirus. I'm Libby Snymer, and those are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. This week began with the good news that Pfizer and its partner, the German company BioNTech, have a vaccine that's 90% effective, at least according to preliminary results. How good is that news and what has to happen before Canadians can be vaccinated? I reached Dr. Gillian Kohler, a professor at the University of Toronto's Leslie Dan Faculty of Pharmacy. The news of this Pfizer vaccine, how good is this news? I would say, and this, this word has not just been used by me, cautiously optimistic. Um, from what I understand, there's, you know, potential for some, you know, really kind of strong feelings of positivity towards this vaccine. The reality is, though, this, you know, news that we've received is just a press release. It wasn't, you know, a clinical trial data that's been analyzed by experts. So we're going on thin information. What we know so far, and again, the information is is pretty thin, that 94 participants out of nearly 44,000 have gotten sick with COVID-19 and that only an independent board of experts know how many got the vaccine, how many got the placebo. But according to their analysis, the vaccine is over 90% effective. Most of a first pass of a vaccine would be 50 or 60%. Exactly. Yeah. No, it's really positive. I mean, it's quite astounding, actually, when you think about it in terms of its projected or purported, I should say, efficacy. Um, that could go down once they kind of finalize uh, phase three. This, you know, this was like these are preliminary results at a predetermined time, but it is absolutely, you know, positive and quite impressive. It's good news, not just for Pfizer's vaccine, but for, you know, the other candidates that are out there as well. What are the things that you need to know about this? You want to know about, obviously, that it's been tested for safety, obviously, efficacy, those are the standard practices. You also want to know about adverse um, effects of the vaccine. Are there any, again, from what I understand, um, there haven't been any major ones reported. So, again, I think people want to make sure that all the potential dangers have been addressed, all the positives have been addressed, and that, you know, when we, once we get the vaccine, that people have trust um, that it's safe and effective and worthwhile. What do we have to find out about uh, the populations that were vaccinated and how different demographics reacted to it? Right, exactly. And that, that hasn't come out yet. So that information is what we need to know. We need to know, you know, how effective is it for the elderly, for example, for people who are most vulnerable to the COVID-19 vaccine. And that information is forthcoming. And that'll really obviously um, be important, too, in terms of how the vaccines rolled out. This is an RNA messenger vaccine, which is different. Can you explain what that means? What it is it's DNA that's sending kind of messages in, inside our body to basically create certain proteins that fight against um, the virus. And how is that different from the way vaccines usually work? That's different in the sense that we're using DNA, that it's not actually a protein from the virus, so we're not injecting the virus into the body. It's, it's different. It's creating the virus. Um, as a result of this, it's a new technology. Again, it's apparently very exciting 
Um, it does require, though, a different type of cold chain. It will require um, refrigeration at a much lower level. I think it's something like negative 70 to negative 80 degrees, um, which is a lot colder than um, other more mainstream vaccines. How is that going to complicate distributing this vaccine? It'll mean that you possibly won't be able to get it in your local pharmacy or through your doctor. It'll have to be centralized through the government. Um, rollout is going to be complicated. I mean, with any vaccine, it's, it's always going to be um, demanding in terms of logistics. And I think for this one in particular, again, I, I understand that you need to have two doses over a period of time. Um, it will require a lot of planning and a lot of infra- infrastructure and a lot of investment. It's not impossible, but it's not something that's going to magically show up and quickly get done, it will take time. Yeah, the two doses. So whoever is in charge will have to make sure the same people come back a month later to get their second dose. Exactly. So you need to make sure that, right, the same people do come back. Um, Also, I mean, the government will have to prioritize vaccines to take time to be made. Um, So again, the government, I mean, I'm not sure if they've actually published in terms of who are going to be their identified priority populations. One can imagine that it's going to be people who are elderly, if it works for the elderly, um, healthcare workers, vulnerable populations first. So there's going to be a lot of planning that has to happen yesterday in order to get this vaccine out safely and effectively. I've seen some of that from the government, from the federal government, and then I've seen kind of different musing on priority lists, say, from Toronto Public Health. So who's going to decide? That's is the question, and I guess that will have to be worked out. And I mean, quite frankly, I think my my opinion would be that we need to be 100% on the same page on this. This has to be done in an equitable way. It has to be done in a coordinated way, and um, it will need very, very good communication between all levels of government from the uh, municipal level all the way up to the federal level of government. What about vaccine hesitancy? Is that going to be a factor here? We need to make sure, and this is something that I'm actually working on, that there's public trust in the vaccine and how can that happen? I think companies have traditionally been quite um, hesitant to be open and transparent about some of their clinical trial data, some of their findings. Um, I think we really need to have a different model here where the general population in kind of layman terms learns more about what this means, what this happens, so we can try and prevent um, some of that vaccine hesitancy happening because that is definitely a peril. The issue is, yes, this is um, an unprecedented, you know, uh, rapid development of the vaccine. But as long as I think the population is aware of this checks and balances, the safety measures that have been put into place and they're clear about it, I think we can lessen it. There will always be vaccine hesitancy by some, and I think it's really important to build up public trust with credible um, evidence and information as we go go along and as we move forward. Dr. Jillian Kohler, thanks so much. My pleasure. Be well and stay safe, and let's hope we get a safe and effective vaccine to everyone soon. That was Dr. Jillian Kohler, professor at the University of Toronto's Leslie Dan Faculty of Pharmacy. I'm Libby Zneimer, and this is the Zoomer Week in Review. Coming up, from a refugee camp in Thailand to the top of Canada's can-lit scene, I talk to Scotiabank Giller Prize winner Suvankam Thamavongsa. 
You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, a new vision of aging. Support CARP with your membership today. Visit carp.ca. This year's Scotiabank Giller Prize winning book, How to Pronounce Knife, is part of a long tradition of Canadian literature about the immigrant experience. The only thing my mother liked about the new country we were living in was its music. We had been given a small radio as part of the welcome package from the refugee settlement program. There were other items in the box, such as snow pants, mittens, and new underwear. But it was the radio she cherished most. Author Suvankam Tamavongsa was born in a refugee camp in Thailand and arrived with her parents at the age of one. I chatted with her after she won the $100,000 prize. Can you tell me about your own experience with the pronunciation of the word knife? Yes. Um, when I was about six years old, I went to school and they gave us a book to read in class. And I came across a word that I didn't know how to pronounce. Um, and I took it to my father and he said with absolute confidence and certainty that it was knife. So I went to school and I pronounced it just as he told me to. Um, and I discovered that it was wrong. I wasn't humiliated and I wasn't sad and I wasn't embarrassed. What I was, was I knew in that moment that I was alone with the language. Um, and I, I was sent to the office because I made a scene that why do we, why is a letter there that is in the front? Why don't we pronounce it? What is the use of it? If There it is in the front. We all see and know it. Why do we agree that what we see doesn't have a sound? And all the stories in my short story collection are about people we seldom hear from. In my stories, they are at the, they're the hero. They are at the center of the story, the loud voice that's amplified. It's funny, you know, your story just reminded me of a story of mine. My parents were post-war Eastern European refugees, and Mm -hmm. I was reading before I studied in school, and I remember I came across the word the, and I asked my mother (laughs) how to pronounce it, and she, of course, said ze, and I read out loud, and I remember (laughs) reading out loud for ages ze. Zap baby carriage. (laughs) But that's it, right? Language, the English language is strange and weird, and we should be allowed to make mistakes when we're learning them. Your work seems to be in in a very fine and long tradition of literature on the immigrant experience. How do you see your work in that lens? I see my writing as coming from poetry, which itself is an art that has a long tradition and that has been practiced for a lot for a long time. And I care about the things that I love and work with in poetry. 
the line, the sentence, the word after the word after the word. And I bring that into the way in which I write fiction. I really love how people who have never picked worms their whole life, they'll read my short story, Picking Worms, and they'll feel like they've, you know, spent years in the field picking worms. You were born in a refugee camp. Tell me about that. My parents are from Laos, and they built a raft made of bamboo to get to a refugee camp in Thailand where I was born. Um, Everybody we know is a refugee or comes from somewhere else. It's not a big deal to us. What a big, what it is to be that is a big deal is a writer. I didn't really perceive, I mean, I didn't know we were poor um, until I went to school over the course of my parents' lives. You know, they have had to um, find new jobs. Um, because they didn't get promoted. And sometimes those moments meant we had to um, live in a van. Wow. Is it going to change your life and the trajectory of your career? Absolutely. Um, you know, this. I understand that in, you know, outside of literary circles, $100,000 could be someone's yearly salary or it could be, you know, um, someone who works on Wall Street, they could make that kind of money in 10 minutes trading stocks, you know. But for someone like me, I've never seen this kind of money at all, um, and I want to be practical with it. Um, I think what this money means or says to a larger public is that, you know, what I do, this writing thing, it's not a hobby. It's not something... Um, frivolous. It's a real and valuable thing. Um, and um, the, pri- the purse uh, shows that. It, that's why I think people are paying attention because it is such a large purse. Suvankam Tamavongsa, a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much. A pleasure talking to you too. Thank you so much for having me on the show. That was Scotiabank Giller Prize winner Suvankam Tamavongsa. Her book is How to Pronounce Knife. And that brings us to the end of this week's edition of the Zoomer Weekend Review. I'm Libby Snymer. Thanks for joining me today. Be sure to come back next week to stay up to date with all things Zoomer worldwide. Zoomer Weekend Review is produced by Zeev Hadi, Christine Ross, and Paul Thomas. Technical producer, Justin Eacock. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.